morning once again. Thank you, Kales, for sharing a powerful communion. That was awesome to help us reflect. And a couple of things before we get started. One is we had a sister from Singapore move here recently. Well, she recently came here for a job interview, and she got the job. So Christine got a job. So go ahead and stand up so we can see your face. So she'll be moving to New Zealand and starting her process of getting her residence, as Abhijit and Rowena have done. Congrats on that. And again, we want to say buenos dias to hermano from Brazil. Brazil. Uh, my, uh, uh, Eduardo, good to have you here, and good to hear you're cleaning up the brother's flat. You can stay a little bit longer if you'd like, so that's awesome. Uh, as everyone is aware, there was a tragedy that happened in New Zealand a couple days ago in Christchurch, and we want to continue to pray for those that have been impacted by this horrible incident. And I do believe it is a statement that shows evil doesn't really discriminate. It doesn't matter who you are, where you are on the planet, the human heart can be evil anywhere at any time. And, and, I, and for me, and for if you're a disciple of Jesus, that there should be something inside of us that increases our willingness and increases our desire to promote love in a world filled with hatred. And it should impact us in a very real way where we're able to generate discussions with people and, and explain the solution to people and really help people see there's a different way of living in a different lifestyle. It is a difficult task to do so, though, because the world has impressions of what Christians are and what Christians are not. And the moment that you open your mouth and you say that you believe in God or you, you use the Bible as your standard or you're a disciple of Jesus, they automatically form some kind of opinion about who you are. And so it's important for us to be very aware of that so we can sift through all of that to help people understand the gospel. This happens to me on a kind of an ongoing basis. People hear my voice, they don't see my face, and they have an impression of what a pastor looks like. A short, bald guy with a Hawaiian shirt. And, and so, but it, at any level, they, they, that's what they think. And, and we've had people over into our home sometimes who have seen our name on a website. They've called us and they've come and said, we, we want to get help in what's going on in our life. And when we meet them, they say, oh, it's, you're not really what we expected to look like. Well, what did you expect? <laughs> no, but everybody kind of has some kind of idea of what a pastor should like look like or a Christian should look like or act like. And I've had other times where I've engaged and I'm trying to, there was one time we were trying to rent a home and I was talking to the landlord and, and, and it was clear this person didn't believe in God by the language and kind of his, his comments. And then he said, well, what do you do for a living? I said, well, I, I'm a pastor at a church. He said, well, hallelujah, bro. Like, like <laughs> really? Really? Come on. You know, like, but there's this, there's, but society kind of has this impression of what we're supposed to be like. It was amazing. It's like, hallelujah, really? Um, but I think we have to be aware of all of this because like it or not, if you say you're a disciple of Jesus, they have an impression about you. And you may exceed that impression or you may not. But it's, it's really important for us to be aware of this. And this all really ties into 1 Corinthians 9 this morning. And so I want to pray and read this together and talk about three things that I really believe will help us as individuals become more like Christ. And us collectively as a church to become more like Christ. 
Let's pray together and then read 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Father, we are grateful that we have you as a father and we have Jesus as our savior. But we're also really saddened by humanity, which, which we're a part of. All of that evil is inside of all of us as well. And given the right circumstances, it comes out. And, and Father, we're just sad to see what has taken place in this country. And the families that were alerted that they have just lost a loved one. Or parents that have just lost a child. Or friends that have just lost a friend for senseless violence. And it sends everyone into a mode of questioning and reflection and what is going on. And, and Father, we, we're sorry that that has taken place, but we also believe firmly that you have the hope that changes the world. And I pray that as we read these scriptures, that we really embrace it and adopt it and live it to show a lost and dark world that there is a shining light and there is solutions to the problem. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's read beginning in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 1. We'll read the whole chapter and talk about three things we can do to become more like Christ. In verse 1, am I not free? And as we read through this, you'll feel a series of at least 10 to 15 different questions from Paul as he really starts to defend his apostleship. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? One of the criteria for being an apostle. Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? And they were questioning him as an apostle. Are you the real deal? And essentially he's saying, if you're questioning me, and I came to Corinth, and I preached, and you believed, and you were converted, what does that say about your faith? Like, am I, are you not the seal of my work? As he started, if, if I'm not legit, neither are you. Think about that. Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas, that's a great insight into the Lord's brothers because during his ministry, they did not believe. And they'll vocalize that. But after he's died and after he's resurrected, the Lord's brothers are part of the Christian movement. And Cephas, in verse 6, Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? And then he's going to give a huge amount of illustrations to make his point. Verse 7, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? Do I say this merely on human authority? In other words, am I just using human logic? No. Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? It should more literally read, is it only about oxen? It's not implying that God doesn't care about oxen. But in verse 10, surely he says this for us. Doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us. Because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? 
But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. And then he seems to remember something else from the Old Testament. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple? And that those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? If you served as a priest and when they brought food or sacrifices, whatever was left over, that was your portion. That was your salary. That was your pay as a priest. And in verse 14, in the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. It's almost like he's really saying, I need your salary from you. But then in verse 15, but I have not used any of these rights. And I'm not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me. For I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge and so not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. In essence, his, his life and his ministry is a paradigm of the gospel. Everything he gives is free because he works with his own hands as a tent maker. In verse 19, though I am free and belong to no one, I made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew, even though he was Jewish. He still becomes like them, even though he's not bound to the Jewish law. To those under the law, became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Though I am free from God's law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. In other words, I'm not just some lawless missionary, but I I am under Christ and God's law. Verse 22, to the weak I became weak to win the weak. I become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all of this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. And then he concludes, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. What a great chapter of Paul and God's insight into how we can become more like Christ. Now, what's going on is they're questioning his authority. That's kind of the essence of it all throughout the letter. As a missionary, as an apostle, he says, I have a right for you to pay my salary. There's human analogies, there's scripture analogies, it's very clear, there's no, there's no doubt, I have a right for you to pay me as the apostle in Corinth. But I'm not taking your pay. That's, that's what's going on. And as a result, they started to question, because in this day, any philosopher or traveling missionary worth their weight charges a fee. And the higher the fee, the better the speaker. 
President Barack Obama charges half a million for about an hour to speak. That's insane. Now, I don't know how good, you know, it's pretty good, but is it half a million? I don't know. But in, in this day, they would, the, the higher the fee, the better the speaker. And so when Paul says, I'm not going to accept your salary, they're almost like, well, he must not really be that good. He must not really be an apostle. Plus, they see him kind of change like a chameleon, depending on the crowd in their eyes. When he's eating with Jews, he follows those customs. When he's with Gentiles, he doesn't follow the Jewish customs. So they're like, this guy doesn't collect a salary from us. He's a chameleon. He doesn't even have a wife. What's going on? Is this guy really an apostle? Is he really someone we should be listening to? He's wishy-washy. And so, unfortunately, as in the position of authority, he has to defend himself in order just to be heard. So here he is saying, look, I, I have the rights, but I'm not even using them. I'm not even asking for money. And I'm writing, not so you will give me money, but I'm just making a point. I have the right, but I'm not even, I'm not even using it. And he, and he explains all of this in chapter 9 can be crystallized because of the sake of the gospel. That's, that's, that's it. I do everything for the sake of the gospel. Everything. And so three things that tie into this this morning. First of all, are you advancing or are you hindering? The reason Paul doesn't accept the salary from Corinth, the reason his behavior changes is alluded to in verse 23. I do all of this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Every action, every thought, Every reason I have is connected for the sake of the gospel. And in verse 7 through 12, he'll explain, look, I have rights. I have rights. Verse 13 through 18, I have more rights to collect salary from you. But the conclusion, I didn't use those. Why? Why? Well, when you accept money from someone, there's normally strings attached. And, and Paul knows this. Or there's some people in the church in Corinth that might have said, oh, he's collected. What if they didn't have enough money? And they see Paul getting money. And they think, well, why is he getting money? And I'm living the same life as Paul. And so he says, look, in order to avoid all of this and for the sake of the gospel, I'm going to work with my hands. Plus, I'll meet more people making tents anyway. That's his mindset. I do this all for the sake of the gospel. He built his entire ministry around this. As long as the gospel is advancing, that's my main concern. In fact, when he's in jail in Philippi, he gets put in jail. And so some people think, now's my time to start preaching and take Paul's position. And then there's another group that says, I still want to share the gospel out of a pure motive. So you've got these two groups that are starting to preach the gospel. And Paul says in Philippians 1.12, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Yes, some people are preaching because they got wrong motives, and some are preaching because they have right motives. But I don't really care as long as the gospel is getting out there. What a crazy conviction. This is like on another level. His, what drives him is, is the gospel advancing. And then in contrast, in our passage back in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 
In verse 12, he's also aware that some things hinder. And he understood, if I collect this money from Corinth, it could possibly hinder them from understanding the gospel. And then he says this, I didn't use this right. On the contrary, we, me and Barnabas, put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Hinder literally is an obstacle. I knew it might be an obstacle to you, so I didn't do it. I knew it might be an obstacle to this group, so I didn't do it. When I'm with Jews, I knew it might be an obstacle that if I didn't eat according to their food laws, they wouldn't hear what I have to say. I knew that when I'm with Gentiles, if I followed these strict Jewish laws, they might not hear what I have to say. It would be an obstacle, obstacle, obstacle. Therefore, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I want the gospel to advance, not to be hindered. And he's saying, you, church, are not on the same page. Things you do aren't for the gospel, it's for yourself. You're suing one another, and when the outside world looks at that, how's the gospel going to advance? This brother over here has a weak conviction, and you're doing it and calling him into the sin, and you're causing him to struggle. When the world sees that, how's the gospel going to advance? Look, I'm, I'm not just talking a good game, I'm living it. I give up my salary for the sake of the gospel, which is a wild thing to do, speaking as me right here, right now. I've never heard a preacher argue this. I want to give up my salary for the sake of the gospel. That's crazy. But that's, that's the conviction that we're driving out here. Everything ought to hinge on this question. Does it help the gospel advance? Does it help the gospel advance? There's a great book called Blink, written by an author, a New York author called Malcolm Gladwell. The basic premise is that when you see someone, by the time you blink, you've made a judgment about that person. And he has a whole host of illustrations to prove that point, a lot of data to prove that point. And he cites this example that at some point when they would audition for the orchestra, the kind of like American Idol or whatever these shows are today, they'd have the judges visible, the person would come out and they'd do their little whatever they do, and then the judges would say yes or no, go away. But they noticed that they would, by by the time the person shows up on stage, you, you already automatically have an impression of somebody. Uh, this, and that would influence their audition. So what they started to do is the judges would sit out on the stage and they would put a big screen up and the person would audition behind the screen. So all they're hearing is the music. And then you reveal the screen like, oh man, how did this ugly person... No. <laughs> but but that's, that eliminated any prejudice. It eliminated any racial profiling, any discrimination. It eliminated all of it and it was simply looking for the best musician. Because those things are obstacles. Right? And that, that's, that's the idea. And so it's a very, very similar. The moment you say, I'm a Christian, I'm a disciple of Jesus, all these different obstacles pop up in people's minds. And we have to learn to, not in a, a weird way, but to put up a screen and filter everything so that they just hear the gospel. And we have to learn to adapt ourselves and change ourselves so that people hear the gospel and not all of these stupid impressions they think about Christians. But it comes from this motive of I want the gospel to advance. I want the gospel to advance. When you audition your Christianity... In a dark and lost world, what are they going to see? Are they going to see someone that's petty and bound by rules and regulations? Or are they going to see someone free? 
because they've been transformed by the gospel. What are they going to see? I think we have to be very sensitive to who we are when we present the gospel. People look at you and they make a decision whether they're going to listen to you or not. People look at the way you're dressed. They make a decision the way you're going to listen to you or not. They look at the way you speak and they make a decision. It's all superficial, but it's real. And if you're not sensitive and you think, oh, I don't care. They need to accept me for how I need to be accepted. Wrong answer. Because it's all about advancing the gospel, not your right to be who you think you are. it's, It's a crazy conviction, but we all must have this to share the gospel. And we need a youth, and our church is varied in its age, but the elder, older members need to pray that we have a youth that just thinks, I'm just concerned about sharing the gospel. Like our teens who are having Bible talks at these high schools, bringing people out to study the Bible. They just want to advance the gospel. But we need more of that in our church. They're not worried about what people think. They just want to advance the gospel. We need to make sure all of our lives hinge on that concept. Secondly, we need to run in such a way. Verse 24. Don't you know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? And on and on and on to verse 27. Gives these images of athletic games and boxing, which are like, man, that fires up the men in the crowd. I want to go run and I want to box and all this kind of stuff. And, And in verse 25, everybody who competes, and that word compete is the Greek word agonizomai. Which is a great word. It's where English agony comes from. But it's, it's fighting, straining, struggling, despite danger and difficulty. It's, it's using blood, sweat, and tears to make it happen. And so Paul says, when, when people compete in these games, they have this great agony. And what do they do? They go into strict training. Verse 25, everyone who agonizomai in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it that will get a crown that will last forever. forever. In Corinth, every two years they had the Isthmian Games, which is similar to the Olympic Games. Olympic is like the first, and then the Isthmian Games are every two years. So Olympic every four, Isthmian every two. So you have, you have lots of athletics happening in Corinth. Very likely Paul goes and sees this and draws some of his metaphors and illustrations from this. And so for the Isthmian Games, the athlete competes. He goes into ten strict months of vigorous training. And he runs the race or he does the competition, does whatever he does. And at the end of the race, he wins this celery wreath. That's the crown you get. Ten months of training your body, of agonizing, rigorous, hard work ethic, blood, sweat, and tears. Here's your celery wreath that's going to go on the top of your head that will wither in a few days. That's your prize. All of that work for all of that celery. And you wonder what this would look like in real life. Well, we know because we have someone who has actually had a wreath of celery placed on his head recently. And here, here he is. Is it like, There he is. Is it... <laughs> That's actual footage when, when Carlos climbed up the top of some mountain and he rode his bike up there and he trained and he worked hard and he said, Agonizomai! I have... <laughs> That's the celery. <laughs> That's the celery right there. But the, the point being made here is that look what these people do for a little piece of celery. 
Look how hard, look how much they adjust their lives for something so temporary. They went above and beyond for something that doesn't even last. Why wouldn't we work much harder, train much more rigorously, discipline ourselves so much more for something that's eternal? Why wouldn't we do that? When people do it for something that doesn't last at all. There, 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 there ought to be something very focused. We, we all should be running in such a way as to get the prize. Everybody who runs, you don't get rewarded just for simply running the race. You get rewarded for flat out winning the race. Because you've gone above and beyond in your training. And so th- this applies because if you're a disciple of Jesus, you don't get just rewarded for sharing your faith. That's what you're flat out commanded to do. But you go above and beyond. Let me figure out how to really connect the gospel. Let me run in such a way as to enter this person's life and understand them so that I can advance the gospel. You've all heard of Michael Phelps, six foot four, 74 kg. This guy's a beast. A minimum of 80 kilometers a week swimming when he's training. Minimum. That's more than some of us commute to work on a week. (laughs) 12,000 calories a day. They recommend what? If you're a woman, 2,000. A man, 2,500. 12,000 calories a day. Just to fuel his body for his energy. Five to six hours a day when he's training six days a week. Flat out job. Not surprisingly, the most decorated Olympian in history. 28 gold medals. No one's even close. The next one is 18. 18 medals. 18 gold medals. 28 gold medals. But it's not because he just ran the race. It's because he goes into strict training. And that's the point of this. It's not just about, let me just invite somebody to church. It's let me go above and beyond and take this message into this world that's hurting and dark and needs the gospel. Let me run in such a way that they can hear the gospel. I believe this chapter is a call for all of us to run in such a way as to get the prize. I believe it's a call higher for all of us to get the prize. In New Zealand, statistics show that by the year 2038, here's what the makeup of our demographics and ethnicity will look like. This is all projection, so it's not hard facts, but it's what they believe is going to happen. New Zealand will be beyond 6 million, Auckland will be beyond 2 million, and the big three ethnicities will be European at about 3.78 million, Asian, which is a combination of five different ethnicities, about 1.27, the Maori and Pacific Island about 1.2. Now why do I say that? I say that because if you don't know how to connect to these people, you're not going to be advancing the gospel. If you stick in your little bubble, while the demographics of New Zealand change, you're not running in such a way. We're studying the Bible with people that come from Asian backgrounds who don't even know about God. Don't even believe the Bible is a supernatural inspired book. And here you come with a a seeking God study and you have no idea what to say to them. We got to train ourselves to reach these people. We got to run in such a way to understand who, how they think and where they come from so that we can run in such a way. Run in such a way is to get the prize, training ourselves to understand the gospel message so that we can crystallize it and that we can present it clearer and on and on and on. 
If we're doing that, we're running in such a way. If you're not, you're not running in such a way. But I encourage us all to do so. In addition to that, in New Zealand, 38% say they have no religion, 8 identify with nothing, and 4 just say, I'm not flat out going to answer that question. So that's, I don't know, that's what, close to... Not a numbers guy, 46, 50, half. That's a good amount of people that saying, hey, do you want to hear about God? They're like, I object to answer. So the, the reason I say that if we're not running in such a way, you're going to shut people down automatically. And I'm not saying we cater. I'm not saying we go to the pub and say, hey, do you want to hear about Jesus? Let's have a beer. I'm not saying, hey, you want to hear about Jesus? Let's go chase women. Hey, you want to, I'm not saying that. But I am saying we got to run in such a way as to figure out how to connect to these people. If you don't believe so, look at what just happened a few days ago. There's people in this world that need this, but it's not just going to magically happen. We need to run in such a way as to get the prize. If you only think about your own ethnic group, you're not really running in such a way. If you're not considering how to connect to all nations, especially the growing number of people here in Auckland, you're not running in such a way. If you're using the same stale illustration that you used 20 years ago in a Bible study, revamp it! That thing doesn't work anymore. Right? You need to figure out how, how can I make the gospel fresh so that people want it! Like it ought to be heard. If you're stuck on focusing on what people should do to reach out to people, or if you're analyzing how different people reach out and you're wondering why they're doing this or why, stop focusing on that and get in the game and run your own race. If you're spending more time about, oh, you shouldn't drink a beer or you shouldn't listen to this music or you shouldn't do that or you shouldn't celebrate this or that, run in such a way as to get the gospel out somehow. And stop focusing on what people are not doing, especially in light of this evil in our own backyard. We cannot be indifferent to human souls. We have to run in such a way. Pagans are training hard to win temporary crowns. Disciples should be training even, training even harder to win people's soul for eternity. Lastly, becoming weak. That's what Paul says he does. I became, I became all these different things to different people. To the weak, I became weak. And what does that mean? I mean, in chapter 8, he talks about people that have weak conscience. Maybe he's trying to help them, but broadly, maybe he's just trying to help people that are weak. But the question is, why would someone do that? Why would someone deliberately lower themselves? Why would someone deliberately adapt themselves to someone who has a weaker or lesser conviction? Why would someone intentionally become weak? It doesn't make sense until you read Philippians 2. In Philippians 2, chapter 1, Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 through 8 says that Jesus deliberately lowered himself and became human. Same word when Paul says, I become all things to all men. Jesus becomes human and he becomes obedient to death on a cross. So why would someone do that? Well, because Jesus did that very same thing. A God deliberately lowering himself to become human. A God deliberately, willingly, and completely dying, becoming weak, so that we can be strong. 
That's why we do that. You think, oh, I don't want to change the way I speak or the way I dress or the way I do this. Well, you haven't done this. You haven't deliberately lowered yourself to die on a cross. So there's no excuse. And the point is, the end is already in sight, right? Jesus has already died on the cross. The victory is already won. The game is already over. The game is already over. And so the victory is So we just have to preach this good news. In sport, there's always scores like this in cricket. What was this? 2008. Sorry, John and Jerry. But New Zealand versus Ireland. That's a great score. 402 to 112. At some point, you knew that the game was over. And even though there was time left and they just kind of played out, but there was no uncertainty about what was going on, right? The game is over. There was a clear victor. And there's a very similar concept in the cross because people are always saying, well, why does God let evil happen in the world? And why is God letting this? And how can he be good? And Well, the game's already over, to be quite honest. He's already died, disarmed the powers and prince. That's all done. We're just kind of waiting out the clock. It's very clear. There's no doubt. There's no uncertainty who won when Jesus died on the cross. That's clear. And now we're just kind of waiting, ticking the clock down. And so this is the message that we bring. We become weak because Jesus became weak. This is the event that has taken place and changed history. There's no doubt. And from this point on, we're just telling people the good news until he comes back. That's why we lower ourselves. That's why we intentionally help people. As we conclude 1 Corinthians 9, we do get a glimpse into what it really means to do all things for the sake of the gospel. And I believe this is a high call to us as individuals to really learn what can I do to advance instead of hinder the gospel. How can I become more like Christ? How can I run in such a way? How can, I, how can I understand this message so that I can present it to a wide variety of people? And why do I become weak? Well, it's because Jesus became weak, winning the victory for the sake of the gospel. Amen.